I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. And we have, we have just Eddie. It's Kevin Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Marie. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Vincent. Thank you for being here. All right, I'm Alex Del Sordo, Roche Choice. And this is a live uh, recording podcast here. And I have two... They're not going to say it, but I'll say it. Legends of Boathouse Row, Philadelphia rowing in general. And uh, I'm with Bruce Kanapka and Bill Lamb. But Bill, I want to tell you a quick story. I've told this already to other people. So my first experience with you, this is 2003. I am 16 years old. I'm in the junior varsity, I'm in JV8 at Mainland High School. Chris Kanicki, my head coach, brings you in. Yep. And he says, guys, we have a special guest. Now, I don't know who the hell you are, right? Like, we don't know anything about you. And... You said, you, you sat us down, it's the Varsity 8, at the time, Mainland's Varsity 8, 2K average was a 6.15. We were lightning fast, the Varsity 8. The JV, we were way fucking slower than that. Way slower. And you said, boys, we're going to do two 20-minute pieces, and we're gonna get, you're going to gun it. And he says, you, you looked us in the eye. You said, JV, good luck. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, fine. So our coxswain was really smart, and he... You said to Chris Kinnicky, give them a country mile. Give them a lead because these boys are going to eat them up. <laughs> so we paddled for the first like seven minutes of that piece. And when the varsity came up, we gunned it. And you were losing your shit, man. You were losing your mind. You're screaming at the varsity. Not enough. Not enough. Eat them up. Eat them up. And we just, we buried you. Like we were like, we won. And then... They started to pass us. Naturally, Varsity 8 started to beat us. And you told Chris Kinnicky to wake the shit out of us. You just said, rev it. And you waked us the entire time. For 13 straight minutes, you put your engine at the worst spot. And we're just like this the whole time. We're vibrating like this. Should have been ahead. Should have been ahead. Should have been ahead. So then we get off the water. You give us a great speech. It was very... Very emotional, very energizing. You said, like, man, you know, the Varsity 8, this is the fastest boat I've seen all year, you know, to the Varsity 8. And you said, you, you, you gave the JV credit. You really did. And I did not see you again until 2015. So right. 11, 13, 12 years later, you remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were out here on the stretch yeah, of water, yeah, and you were with UBC. And um, you were calmer. I'll say, you were a calmer guy. <laughs> And you gave me incredible advice about coaching, about life. And I wanted to tell you, I have not forget it, Bill. I have <laughs> not forget you. that. Thanks. I will never forget it. Thanks. All right, so let's start. We do every podcast interview. I'm doing 125 of these. So, Bruce, I'm going to start with you. How old were you and where were you when you took that first rowing stroke? I was 14. I was at uh, Malta Boat Club. My older brother had rowed at LaSalle High School, and that's where LaSalle rowed at the time until George Hines kicked us out. He moved LaSalle <laughs> University up there, and thank God for Tom Rafferty moving us up to Schuylkill Boat Club in Maniunk, but that's a whole other set of stories. Um, and I wrote a gig. It was in the summer before. A gig? A gig. Like this above us. Wider. <laughs> Wider. But here's the funny story. My brother was rowing at Undine, so he would come down. My parents would have him bring me down. He'd help me carry the gig out. And like today, nobody rode out of Malta Boat Club. You know, so once I went out in the boat, I had no coaching. I rushed up and down the slide. I'd do six miles, come back. And then I couldn't get the boat in. I couldn't carry it myself. And I remember vividly back then at Vesper, the elite guys, it was Mike Vespoli. It was uh, uh, 
Uh, geez, I could picture the different guys there. They ended up in that 72 boat that won the world championships for, not 72, the boat that won for Rosenberg, 74. 74. And I was, they were all there drinking out of the hose and all, and I was deathly afraid to ask anybody to help me carry the boat. So I'd sit on the dock and wait. And like sometimes somebody from Vesper would see me and say, hey kid, can I give you a hand? And most times nobody, I had to wait for my brother like an hour later to come oh down. God. And Walt would say, what the fuck are you doing? I had said, nope, nobody was here to give me a hand with the boat. So they were my first strokes. So what year was that? Just uh, So it would have been the summer of, uh, I graduated LaSalle in 74. So 74, 70, so it's 71, 70, 70, I think, summer 1970. Yeah. Carried all four years of LaSalle. Yep. Right, and then moved on to, where'd you go to college? Uh, University of Penn. So, you, I mean, you stayed on the road, man. You didn't leave this place. No, I didn't leave the place. In fact, I rode for one of the greatest coaches, John Landers here, his father, Fred Landers. Uh, he was like a second father to me. Fred was the wow. best, and, and I just have a million stories about Fred alone. I'm sure we'll know? get to those. Yeah. Now, now, Bill. Yes. Tell me, how old were you, and where were you when you took that first stroke? It was uh, spring of 1976. Um, I was a freshman at St. Joe's Prep, and um, I grew up in, in summered in Avalon, New Jersey, and my grandmother's house was right adjacent to where the tennis complex is down there. And back then, oh, tennis yeah. was very popular. So I played a lot of tennis as a kid, and I wasn't an athlete, but I liked doing athletic things. And I got good enough at tennis that I thought I could make the team at the prep. And I ended up making the team, me and one other freshman, it's a fall sport, right? That's like not your, anymore. Back not then, anymore. it was a spring sport. Spring sport, and and in fact, we started tennis before they started indoor training for crew, and we would play inside at the Boldy Purpose Room of the prep. And the coach was this little fat guy named Rich Fairchild. <laughs> and the first day after tryouts, when I had already made the team, he goes, "Now, what we're going to do with you is we're going to change your grip. We're going to do this. We're going to do that." And I'm thinking, I could beat this guy right now. <laughs> of course, I probably couldn't, but you know. I was brimming with confidence none of it earned. Anyway, we only had the multi-purpose room two days a week, and then the baseball team had it three days a week. So on one of the days when we didn't have it, one of the guys that I'd become friends with while I was a freshman at the prep said, you ought to come down to the boathouse and try rowing with us. You're in a tennis practice. So I went down, and I tried it, and the freshman coach was a guy named Henry Bender who couldn't coach rowing at all, but he was like a prophet. You know, he was just this guy that could sell you anything. And, like, he wouldn't let me leave the boathouse until I told him I would come back the next day. And I was terrible. But what I came to figure out was they only had seven guys on the whole novice team that year. Wow. And they needed an eighth. So I thought, well, so I told my dad, I'm going to quit tennis. I'm going to do this rowing thing. And my uncle had rowed at the prep and then at Holy Cross. So, you know, he, he was familiar a little bit with it. But he goes, well, why, why are you doing that? You already made the tennis team. I said, yeah, but these guys are all better than me. He said, they only have seven guys. I'll, I'm going to row in every race. It's going to be great. You know? And, again, I, I wasn't You fell into it. I wasn't an athlete, but I wanted to do athletic things. And wow. this gave me an opportunity to do that. So, so then so that spring you, of 76. Spring, so you did all four years at, at prep? Yes. And then did you row in college? I did. I went to Rutgers College uh, and spent two years there. And... Um, you know, going from Norwood Academy to St. Joe's Prep and then Rutgers University, it was, they had girls there. I mean, I had never gone to school with a girl in my life. I mean, it was, it was not the environment for me. So I transferred back to, uh, I transferred back to St. Joe's University, who had dropped their team at the time, but it turns out that 
three of the guys that I had rode with at the prep had all transferred back to St. Joe's at the same time. So we started the process. And now rowing's the biggest, by headcount, the biggest varsity sport at St. Joe's. I mean, St. Joe's prep, I know you guys have a tie there, and we'll get to that in a minute, but that clearly uh, prominent, one of the best teams in the country right now. Not when I rode there. Not when you were there. You guys, <laughs> dirt slow, right? Uh, we were bad. We were yeah. bad. We were bad. So when we were putting this together, we were thinking, who's a great, who are two great per- people to talk to about Philadelphia rowing? And I had always wanted to interview you. And then we were, we were like, well, who's the next guy? And we polled a few people, and you came up, Bruce. So now I got to ask, let's, let's start here. How the heck are you two connected? I know this is a deep story. There's a lot of history. But let's hear from you. How, the, how do you two know each other? When did it start? Give me, the, give me some history on that relationship. Sure. I think I uh, – well, Bill started coaching at the prep. When did you start with Chuck? What year Fall was Fall of 1981 when I transferred to St. Joe's. Yeah, okay. And I was coaching at Penn at the time. I was coaching the freshman lightweights. Was Stan Bergman there at the time? No. No, 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 no. That's a whole other story. Let's get, I can't wait to get uh, to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Bill, I knew Chuck Crawford well because Chuck was coaching the, uh, the prep team, and Chuck's the one that really got it going back yeah, on track definitely. again. And I was at Henley with Chuck. I wasn't there in 1980, but 1984 when... We were both there together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I remember Bill was coaching the freshman there, and, and the year that he graduated from St. Joe's, University was the best year of his life because not graduating, but his freshman crew won the Stotesbury. It was the first time the prep had ever won that. And uh, Bill was beyond the moon. So anyway, I got to know Bill from Chuck. And Chuck was, you know, Chuck always had his best guys for me at Penn, but they were his guys that weren't going to go to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. You know, so... (laughs) Bruce, really, though, Chuck Alphabet's your best guy. (laughs) No no offense, Joe, he went to Northeastern. Okay, on scholarship, that was good. Uh, But I think that's how I first met Bill. And then a real quick story, when when I really got to know Bill was in uh, 1984 when I was, when Ted Nash resigned, I took over. I was the heavyweight rowing coach at Penn that year. It was springtime. It's when... uh, we had that tragic accident with Kippy Little going over the dam. Bill and Mike Fountain, Magic Fountain, got in the launch, drove well past the safety line trying to grab her. Bill and Magic went over the dam. And when I finally met Bill, I thought, boy, what a, what a ballsy thing to do. Because I got to tell you, I, I think I would have thought three times about getting that close. But he and Magic did everything they could to try to save Holy her. Holy moly. And, uh, it was a heroic move on Bill's part and Magic's part. Seriously, they, it was heroic. That's a story. I didn't even know that story. Yeah. I'm sure you have 800 more stories like that, too, don't you? Not that good, yeah. <laughs> Not that heroic, but good. You know, Bruce was single at the time, and I was single at the time, and Chuck acted like he was single at the time. <laughs> so we, we, spent, we spent a lot of time after practice breaking down the row at Mesa's Crossing. And... Uh, I learned a lot about coaching in those sessions. But when I really, when the light bulb really went off, because like I was just a guy who figured if I spoke loud enough, people would listen to me. And where I thought that maybe I could do this for a little while was because of Bruce. In that spring of 84, the guy that he he had to quickly fill, because Ted was pushed out, Bruce was the interim head coach, and he had to get a freshman coach. And he got this guy who had been a coxswain of a lot of great lightweight crews out of Vesper named Joe Canino. And Joe had very different ideas about rowing than what was mainstream at that time. 
And, you know, he had a good group of recruits because Bruce had recruited them all, um, but they weren't, you know, they weren't really performing at any sort of level. So after the Eastern Sprints, Bruce cut Joe loose, and he asked me if I would coach his freshman between the Eastern Sprints and the IRA. And it's I had like a two full, weeks. I had a full-time job <laughs> at the time, so I was like, I don't, think I, can do, I don't think I can do that. But I said to my dad, this guy asked me to do this. I might actually be okay at this. Like, I don't know. You know, we'll see what happens. You know, like, it was pretty funny. But that was really that gave me the impetus. Like, I should really actually become a student of this and, and see if I can help some kids. Before wow. that, it was just like, you know, all right, yeah, I'll do this while I'm at St. Joe's. What the heck, right? Why so not? now we're like, we're like in 85, 84, 85 right now, right? So, so did you guys, like, just stay the same path together for – like all these years, like where? Yeah, what, what happened that, was then that Chuck knew he was going to re- uh, go on to something else. I think Stark. He, did he go right to Delaware? No, to no, start? no. There was he, a time between. Yeah, that. that was there was a time between. His wife had been diagnosed with lupus. His kids were in an age he couldn't keep doing the commute, and he wanted to be home more. His business was growing, and he, it was time for him to, you know, and sure. and and Chuck, you know, again like Fred Leonard for Bruce. Chuck was like a second father to me. Still is. Harry and I just played golf with him a couple weeks ago. And um, great guy, but he's completely full of shit. And, you know, I think that his bullshit had run its course. And, like, he was, he was out of, he was out, he was out. He was, the tank was empty, you know. So I knew that he was leaving, and, um, and, but Chuck had poured every fiber of his being into taking this program that was terrible. Did they I mean, win Henley in 83, 84? No, no, no. Well, I'll tell you that in a second. But he, he went in 1980 with a very, very good crew, and they lost in the final. He went in 1984 with, an, again, another very, very good crew, and we lost by a hair in the final to St. Edwards, who won this past year. But he really took a program that was nothing. I mean nothing. Every year I was at the prep before Chuck got there, we had a different head coach. Uh, you know, God rest his soul, one of them died in a motorcycle accident. He was a bad alcoholic. The guy before that, who knows what he was. He was a weirdo. I know that. He was the, <laughs> he was the coach my freshman year, Al Casal. And... Uh, and, uh, and then Chuck comes in and, you know, inspires us with all this, you know, BS, really. And, but we believed it. And by 1980, so 1978 was his first spring. We were, you know, marginally not so terrible. By 79, he had a lightweight eight that won the national championship and won Canadian schoolboys. And that the heavyweight team started to feed off the lightweight's energy. And they won the uh, schoolboy uh, national championship in 1980 and went to Henley and lost in the final. And Chuck was like, really, I want to get back there. I want to get back there. We had a great group in 84. We went back. We lost by a little bit in the final. And, um, and I think that really, that was the, and then in eight, you know, there were some things with the administration and a couple of the guys in the 84 crew decided to hang around Henley for a couple of nights and have a couple of pops. Yeah. And that didn't end Pops. well. That didn't end <laughs> well for a couple of them. So, or, or the, the, the moped. Yeah, or the, the moped that ended up in the Thames. But, uh, you know, I think Chuck felt like, you know, the administration maybe wasn't completely, you know, for whatever reason. He just felt like it was time to move on. And I saw this coming down the pike. So I actively started to recruit Bruce, who at the time was coaching. I, I wasn't coaching then. I oh, stopped. You weren't. You would stop. Yep. Okay. Yeah, because I wasn't sure if you were active at Penn then or not. So I, I recruited Bruce, and, um, and he took the program over from Chuck in the fall of 87 and through the winter of 87 and, and uh, spring of 88, and uh, we had a ball. We had so many laughs. Wow. I can't even tell you. And we learned so much, I mean, about kids. And we had great kids, and they were super invested. 
we just kept the culture that Chuck had put in place and tried to turn the volume up a little bit, and we got more kids. I mean, we had a tremendous guy at St. Joe's Prep named Father Vince Taggart, and he taught every single freshman world history. And he made a point of telling every single freshman that he thought was a little bit, hadn't found their thing yet. you got to try this rowing thing. So it would be typical for us to have 100, 110 freshmen try out for the team. Holy cow. And really, Penn AC cut us off. Were you the freshman coach? I was until 85, through 85, and then I took over the lightweight midweight program. And, Which uh, is a whole, that, that doesn't that exist anymore, midway. Yeah, right, doesn't exist. Right, right. And then you were the head coach? Yeah. So, came in. Yeah, we had, talking about the freshman team, this guy, Gene Pelzinski's coaching, <laughs> coaching the freshmen. It's the Stotesbury Cup Regatta, our freshman crew were in the final. Bill and I are upriver watching the midweights or lightweights or something. We come back to the boathouse. The freshmen are in the boathouse. I said, how come the freshmen aren't out? They said, oh, they missed their race. I said, they missed the final, Stokesbury? So I said, Gene, what, what happened? And only at Penn AC could this happen. On top of the locker was the Stokesbury program from the, year, from the year before, okay? The printed program, and that was the program Gene was going off for the final. I almost killed, I could have killed. So I said to Gene, well, I'm telling you what, you're talking to parents because I'm talking to nobody. Anybody that comes to me, I'm sending them right to you because I'm washing my hands. Another Bruce fun- had recruited Gene to row at University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Gene, Gene was in my 84 crew. Another funny story was in 91, Bill and I, uh, the varsity, we had a good varsity eight. We lost to Stotesbury. They just never settled. They, we would have had a really good shot of winning. We had the guys regroup. We, Tom Murtha was in that boat, by the way. So we tried to get him to regroup. We get down to Nationals in St. Andrews. So me, Bill... My wife now, Ray Del Bianco, who is our manager, we decide we're going to go watch on the St. Andrews side because you get a better viewing point over there. So we go on the St. Andrews side, and there's a whole bunch of St. Andrews parents in us. So, there's, so we're, we're not, we don't have any prep gear on or anything. We're just kind of standing there. And uh, one of the St. Andrews parents says uh, to another parent, Geez, I wonder if the prep did anything special over the last week. So Bill says, I don't know. The coach is right here. Why, why don't you ask him? So the St. Andrews, so anyway, we ended up coming down and winning by about three quarters of a life. We're ecstatic. We're, we didn't even get back to the car, and Bill had the whole Henley trip planned, you know? He's telling Ray, listen, you got to call here. You got to get this. You got to get Angus Robertson. We got to get the boat. We got to do this. And it was classic. But the funniest was, and Bruce and I knew each other well enough by then. We were at Henley together in 84. He with uh, University of Pennsylvania. And I was Chuck's assistant with the prep that year. And it was, um, it was, it was magical. We had, uh, you know, I could, we could tell stories for five hours about that trip. But the funniest thing was Bruce had taken over from Ted. And, and they had a very talented group. And... Um, you know, but they had been underperforming. Ted's attention was more diverted towards his Olympic athletes. And, you know, so these guys were just great guys, hungry for coaching. And Bruce provided that. And he also provided them with a, a level of self-confidence that they had been missing as a group. So they ended up winning the silver medal at the Eastern Sprints. And then they ended up winning the silver medal at the IRA. So we end up at Henley. And, um, and they end up in a fist fight in front of the boat tents. You know, we had been, we were just sitting there in boat slings. And he looks at me and he goes, they got in a fight the night before the sprints and they got a silver medal. They got in a fight the night before the IRA, they won a silver medal. He goes, we got to race the national, the British national eight 
on Saturday in the Grand Challenge Cup. Let's go. Let's let them fight. <laughs> and I just thought, right, no problem. But, you know, now Bruce's son's a lightweight at Penn. You know, he'll get a shirt like this. It'll cost him 300000 Mike Gennaro sent it to me because he's the new coach there. He wanted me to do a commercial for him. But the funniest thing about that trip was every American crew – in 1984, made the final in their event. And one by one, every American crew lost. And um, Rick Richter, right? Or what was his name? Rick Richter, right? Dave Vogel's assistant from Yale. Yeah. Had, was a member of the Stewart's Rick Elzer. Rick, Elzer. Rick Elzer. He owned a microbrewery, which was a new thing back then in New Haven. And he was a member of the Stewart's enclosure, which many could order booze on a chit. So as these American coaches are losing, he starts waving over. We're at the Folly Bar in the stewards enclosure at Henley, if anybody's ever been there. And the waitress keeps coming around. And sure enough, by like 11.30, 12 o'clock, our order, our standard order every time she came around was 16 pints of Pims and two <laughs> Magnums of Tottingers, right? A lot of champagne, a lot of, a lot of Pims. And we're making pyramids out of the cups and the foam. <laughs> And Rick, Rick was really good at doing the pyramid. Then he'd pour in the top glass, and it would come down, you know? And, and I everybody mean, every, every, flute. Like, Vogel was there. Chuck Crawford was there. Will Scroggins, who was the freshman coach at Brown. The Brown freshman had lost. Uh, we had um, the old Washington head coach there was for a couple of beers. Dick Erickson. Dick Erickson, because they, they had lost to the British national team in the finals of the Grand Challenge Cup. And it was, it was hilarious. And at the end of the day... The, the chit comes, and I'm sitting with a lot of cash because I was managing the trip for the prep. And, and Bruce says, let's see what happens here. And, and, and Rick, bombed out of his mind, signs the chit, doesn't ask any of us for any money. It was like $6,000. <laughs> and, 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 and he found a way to run it through the Yale recruiting Yale paid for it. <laughs> I want to point something out here. Your memory is unbelievable. You know, the, the coaches, the rowers. It, that that, that, that seems that to be pretty standard for you guys here. That trip, Dick Erickson, the old uh, <laughs> Washington coach, I'm sure some of you remember him. He was a great guy. Guy was a chain smoker, so he'd be in the boat tent, and he'd be squatting down, puffing on a cigarette. So Washington would, would come over, and then they would go to Amsterdam and race there, and then they came back to race at Henley. So... Uh, the regatta stewards loaned, loaned him this, uh, got him this wooden empocker. No, it was so, in Eaton. It was in Eaton. Okay, it was Eaton. So anyway, <laughs> so Bill and I were in the boat tent, and, and Dick Erickson has this guy, Angus Robertson, who's real high up in the regatta, and he's yelling at him with a cigarette in his hand, my crew's not going to beat your national team in this crate. When I come back from Amsterdam, I want a new boat on the rack. Absolutely. And he had a new boat when he got back. <laughs> and... This was a little, this was probably, you know, taking it a little too far, but I'll tell the story. We kept having, because we knew that Ted Nash really got under Dick's skin, really got under Dick's skin. And Bruce, of course, had to race the British national squad on Saturday in the Grand Chad. There were only three entries, Penn, Washington, and, and, and Britain. Washington got the bye. He had to take it on the chin on Saturday, and then Washington was going to race him in the final on Sunday. So I kept going to the announcer you know, in front of the boat tents. Could you page Ted Nash again? Tell him we need a fin in boat 10K. And every time we did it, of course, Ted's not there. And every time we did it, Dick Erickson would look around like he didn't know what was going on. Bill did it like three times a day. And I got to tell you, the guy doing the announcing, 
the guy doing the announcing did he's just some guy working there right and every time he did it it was the funniest thing in the world and people would be saying to us is Ted Nash here I haven't seen him right I didn't see him and Bill said I, I think he's here Some, somebody saw him somewhere I'm not sure where it is Right, so so let, let's get into like the late 80s early 90s like where, where did your career go like say like 91 93 94 yeah 91 i coached the prep uh for the last time and then went i to henley. yep went to henley year. how'd you guys do we, oh, lost, we lost in the, the semis. semis to eaton we so always drew like eaton i'm i had started i was in the fall 81 as the freshman coach and i'm still there okay got yeah, it. Bill's, right. Bill's, i have a real i have a i have a a, a job, business. like a yeah, job. Yeah. You have a business. This you have was a job. like yeah. I had. I had a very understanding father and uncle. <laughs> and then uh, from there, I took over for Fred Leonard at Penn, coaching the lightweights. You went back and forth from Penn. Yes. You jumped back and forth. And then Bill, uh, Bill took over the prep program at that point. Head coach, what year? Ninety two. So the spring of ninety two is my first year. Yeah. Yep. And like, what was that conversation like for you guys? Like, you know, you leave in there, you guys have a good thing going. You take it. You I told, I encourage, yeah, well, Fred Leonard, I mean, you know, and Fred had built such a great program, and, you know, Bruce had red and blue in his blood, you know, and, and I just thought, yeah, this is a, you know, this is your call. But you had this a full-time job the whole time. And right. one thing about you, and I think, that, well, I know for sure for Chuck Crawford, he never got paid to coach. No. He, we did an interview, I think, a month and a half ago. We had a month and a half ago. We did our last podcast interview. And he said he never got paid. And one thing you taught me on the water up here in 2015, you go, secret to it, don't get paid. Don't get paid. Don't get paid. Do it because you love it. And by not taking the money, some parent starts breaking your balls. You say, really? Because, <laughs> you know, right? And you taught me that. You'd always say, I'm not beholden to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Not beholden to anybody. Exactly. All right, so you kick over to Penn again. You go back with the, the lightweight program now. So what's going yeah, on Yeah, I was there? teaching school at St. Margaret's School in Narberth. I was... So you had a full-time job, too. I mean, that was your job. Yeah, was, I was... Yeah, and the, the pen job at the time was part-time. It was $10,000. $10,000 yeah, to 10, run 000. the... Are you yeah. kidding me? No. <laughs> and you had $2,000 to pay an assistant coach. Oh, so, my... Yeah, good luck God. finding somebody, you know? Um, yeah, and I actually got the teaching job through somebody at the prep. Uh, it was right Labor Day weekend, Susie Wickersham. Yep. She knew uh, somebody at St. Margaret's School, and the, te- and the teacher had just quit. They needed somebody real quick. The pastor came over. I'd never taught a class. You didn't have uh, a teaching certificate at all? Nothing. Jeez. Nothing. 17, can't do that now. 17500 Got paid every week. And uh, I had 35 kids. The hardest part was teaching two math levels uh, in the same classroom. But some mother came and helped me out with that. So. Jeez Louise. Yeah. But here's another good thing about having a real job on the side. So Bruce and I coached in summers together, and one summer we were running sort of this, like, pre-elite, sort of Pan Am aspirational group out of Penn AC, and we ended up winning some race, which meant they used to have these Olympic festivals, right? Sure. So the Olympic festival that year was in Raleigh-Dorham, North Carolina, in July. Anybody who's ever been in Raleigh-Dorham in July, it's hot and it's humid. So we get down there, we get down there, and we had John Hardigan, who had been a coxswain at Penn for Coach Nash in, in the late 60s, and he worked at Smith Klein, but he was a great coxswain. Bruce said, let's get John in. He can really season these guys and get them along. So he was our coxswain. We get down to Raleigh Dorm, and they're putting us in the dorms at North Carolina State, and we take one look around. These dorms aren't air-conditioned. I'm like, I'm, all, I'm taking vacation from my job. 
let's go. And we checked into some hotel. It was awesome. You know? It was good. Same thing with Houston. We were at the uh, Olympic Festival down in Houston, and all the, like, high-profile athletes, track and field, you know, all the Olympic athletes, Carl Lewis, they're all staying oh in the dorms God. at U- University of Houston, and we're staying at the Woodlands where the rowing was in these townhouses Completely air conditioned. It was it was the best role. Your trip obsession with the sport is unbelievable. It's great. You're doing this for free. Who, who's the northeastern guy going off the high dive? Potter, Who? Dave Potter. Yeah, How Dave, you Potter. This thing? Yeah. Dave Potter. Dave Potter. Well, well it wasn't a high dive. It was platform, platform diving. Platform diving. Have you ever seen how high that is? It's like it's jumping really off the eighth floor of a building. <laughs> it's really high. And this guy go up. We'd hang him on. He'd go up there and he did, he did it every time we asked him. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Hilarious. Great. So nine, your early nineties. You're a pen. Carry me through to the late eight, late nineties, early two thousands. What are you doing? Wait, what am I again? Late so like, you're like we're like we're like ninety two now. You're at Penn, lightweights. Yeah. Carry me through to like the two thousands. Oh, okay. So in uh, well, I really lucked out. So in ninety one, uh, yeah, I went to coach at Penn. Had a real good year at the Penn lightweights, and then John Pescatori, who I'd coached at Penn in eighty four, is rowing a pair with Pete Charis. John had been in the 88 Olympic boat, got a bronze medal. He didn't make the eight or the four in 92, but they won the last speed order. So he said, would you mind coaching Pete and I um, for the Olympic trials in our pair up in Princeton? Yeah. I said, no, no problem. I had a Oldsmobile uh, Delta 88, so I put my bike in the car and I drove up every day and I'm coaching him from the- Do you have the- kids? Yeah, I got five kids. <laughs> <laughs> Back then, though, I didn't. No, yeah, I got so, it. Yeah. So, um, so I didn't even ask Princeton for a launch or anything. I'm just driving up on the bike, and, and they were fast. So, anyway, they win, they win the Olympic trials. You know who they beat? You know who finished second? My pair. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so they win the Olympic trials, and I'm putting my bike back in the car, and, and uh, John goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going home, you know? And he goes, well, you got to stay around for the meeting. You you. I said, what meeting? He says, well, for the, you might go to the Olympics. And I said, nah, I'm not going to the Olympics. He goes, nah, you might, there might be a spot. Hold on, don't go anywhere. So I stay around for the meeting. Well, I get to go as a coach. And, and, and the best thing was we were leaving like in two days for Europe. <laughs> so so we, we flew over to Amsterdam. We met everybody. Corzo was over there with the eight and the four. Uh, we met them in Amsterdam. And then we went to... Um, Germany for training with the women. Hartmut had that lined up. Wow. And then we went to uh, France. And then, uh, yeah, and then we went down to the Olympics. Yeah, so, no big deal. But see, Corzo, I, I coached with Corzo in uh, 84 and 85. I coached lightweight national teams. And, so. And like, so can you, okay, so you're saying Corzo. Can, we have an audience here besides the people here. Who, what is Corzo? Who is Corzo? Chris Corzanowski. Thank you, thank you. That, so we Chris, be Chris came here. over in 83. I had a real good season with Penn in 84. They asked me to coach the lightweight team. I learned the most about coaching from Chris Korzenowski. He's, so, so he's, 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 I mean, he really changed American rowing. He did. He no got everybody no trying to row right? the I mean, same, he was here a lot with you guys, right? Do the same drills. He'd come down to Philadelphia. And uh, so the 84 yeah, lightweight team, we got a silver medal. And then 85, we made the final, but we didn't... Uh, we didn't medal. But then anyway, so then uh, after the Olympics, then I coached the lightweight national team, 93, 94, 95, wow. with uh, Mike Spracklin. He was the 
I don't know. Chris's title was national director. I don't know what Mike's title was, but he wasn't really? very helpful. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. it no, wasn't very that. helpful for us. <laughs> we know that. But the 93 lightweights, you know, Andy Card coached the four, which we won a gold medal. The eight, we didn't, uh, we had a crab at the start. We didn't make the final. That sure. was unfortunate. Uh, but then in 94, we had a really good eight. The one in English Henley, Chris Kerber was in that boat. Yeah. Uh, and that was a lightweight boat. Here's a real funny story about that trip. Mike Spracklin was so stinking arrogant. So we had a straight four. He had a straight four. We're working out with them at Dartmouth before we leave on the trip. When we would do starts with them, they would pull to starboard. So if we were on their starboard side, every time we did a start, they ran into us. Okay? Every time. So in the Stewart's Cup at Henley, there's four boats in the event. So we're automatically in the semifinal. I had this guy, Adrian King of Prepcox, and he was out in the launch with me to watch the race. So I told the guys, listen, the only chance we have of beating these guys is we got to go like hell off the start and hope they run into us, okay? Because they clearly were a lot faster than us. Any other coach than Mike Spracklin is so arrogant would have said to their crew, listen, we know we can kill these guys. Let's just get straight off the line, right? Nope. They start the race, drop the flag, about 10 strokes in, bang! They hit us, white flag goes up. This guy, Adrian, turns to me, he goes, what, what happened? What do we do now? Do we go back in a row? I said, nope, we're in the final. <laughs> and then we, we lost him. We lost to British for it, but I'm telling you, man, it was, a coaching, it was a coaching lesson to be learned. Sometimes telling your crew to back off a little bit, you know, and get straight might be a little better off. All right, this is, I love it. So 90s, it is my opinion... 96 to 07 is the greatest era in U.S. rowing history. It's very hard to argue that it isn't. Now, you, are, you both are here. You, I was at the, the dinner in New York. You were talking about the, yeah, yeah. the 88, the 88 the, straight the 88 four. Straight yeah. four. Yeah, yeah. Great speech, by the way. Um, incredible. What was, it, what was the energy like? What was the, the momentum? What was, it, what was it like to be a, a coach? working with the national team in that era here on Boathouse Row and in this, in this area? It was great. There was just a lot of good people then. The club, there were a lot of good coaches. There were a lot of good athletes rowing at the clubs year-round. Uh, when Ted Nash had that four, they used to work out with my pen eight all the time in 92. Did you work with those guys? Well, no. The, the, no. The straight, oh, Ted, Ted was coaching the 88 four. 80, okay. Yeah, so, like the, 90, yeah, so right. the 92 four... Um, I had the lightweight eight at Penn, and we were fast. We lost the sprints by like four tenths of a second who, or something. Who did who, you lose to? Uh, Cornell, and it was uh, John Ferris, I believe, coached that boat. Okay. Yeah. That might have How'd been you guys do with the IRA? Second to them again. Gotcha. And, and my coxswain, by a little bit. And the coxswain swore she was up by like three quarters of a length. And I said, well, Michelle, I'm sorry, we lost. <laughs> so, I... You may think we won by three quarters, but we lost by four tenths of a second again. The, so. the, the great thing about that era if you, was the fact that Mike was the head coach, Mike Tatey. Mike Tatey. And, you know, he had grown up on Boathouse Row, and you hear Tim, he should be here talking about Boathouse Row. The thing that attracted, because he was a good athlete, he was a very good athlete, and the thing that attracted him to rowing was the people, right? The characters along Boathouse Row, he just thought they were really interesting people. And uh, so he kept at it, and he just tried to get a little bit better every day in his own words. But with him running the show from 96 through really 08, 08 yeah. you know, 
he, and of course he knew that Philadelphia was a great, great place to row. And so he, and, and Chris realized that too. In the 80s, Chris realized that. He would come down riding the launch with any Philadelphia coach that asked him. That's so um, wild, by the way. You don't see that nowadays. No, you, you don't. don't see it at you all. Don't. And with Mike running everything right up in Princeton, it was easy enough for guys to go up there and coaches yeah. to go up there. And he was very welcoming. I mean, you never got turned away. You know, yeah, I got a seat in the launch. Come on. You know, it was great. And it was just a great opportunity to learn. And, um, you know, a guy like Dan Beery was, was doing well. He was rowing at Penn AC. So strong. He finished, uh, I think he had won a bronze medal, you know. And I was down doing a run midday. It was like, I think, fall of – probably fall of 02 or 03, he had just gotten back and he had won a bronze medal in the pair with. And he's like... Wait, doing pair with? Yeah, and he's doing, <laughs> he's doing like some workout <laughs> midday in Penn AC. I'm like, dude, what are you doing here? He's like, what do you mean? It's like, I'm trying to make the Olympic team. And I'm like, you're never going to make it here. You got to go to Princeton. You could just get in your car, go to Princeton because you're the best guy here. You're the best guy by a mile but you're not that good. You need to be the worst guy in the group you're training with. And he'll tell you to this day, he got in his car that day, he drove up. Mike's like, yeah, sure, we'll take you in. He ends up winning a gold medal the next year. Yeah. So there was a lot of that. There wasn't as much parochial, you're a Vesper guy, you're a Penn AC guy, you're an undy. There was, it was very collaborative. And Mike Tatey forced that. He really wanted wow. to see Boathouse Row in Philadelphia, you know, continue to prove. I mean, Garrett Miller, you know, LaSalle guy, Penn guy, Tom Welsh, prep guy. Everyone Princeton here has guy. seen yeah. a fine balance 800 times. Right. <laughs> like, we know these guys. Right. So, you know, those guys were all Philly guys. Mike had a lot of faith in them. Bob Kaler, um, wow. you know, Philly guy. And, and, uh, yeah. and Mike, Mike liked the underdogs, too. He liked guys like Brian Volpenheim, you know, sure. that just picked yeah. up Rowan in college. And, yeah. and Bo. Bo Hoopman. Yeah, Hoopman. Wisco, Wisco yeah. head yeah. coach now. Head yeah. coach now. And yeah. now I think now that – this is a whole other thing, but the college coaches are not teaching anybody how to row from, from scratch. You know, mm -hmm. Bill, Bill and I, and a lot of people here, I'm sure, you, you've taught people to row from scratch, and that's how you become a really good coach. And unfortunately, a lot of people want to step right from the national team into coaching, but they feel they should be the varsity coach or something. Mm -hmm. or, or, nobody wants to pay the dues to do what it is. And, and those guys came out of nowhere, and Mike was great at giving them a shot, and he loved quietly cheering for them, and, and, wow. and he loved Philly guys. I, I can't too. think of the last time there was an IRA or an Eastern Sprint gold medalist, lightweight or heavyweight, that began his rowing career in college. I can't remember the last time. There used to be a ton of them. Wow. It's not the way anymore. Wow. So, like, when did, when did you get out of coaching? Like, when did, when did you hang up the, uh, the whistle, like the, in, the well, megaphone? I'm still coaching now. but Still coaching now? Yeah, but no three. I'm an idiot. I should have yeah, done that. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't worry about it. In 02 or 03, as, I, as my kids started getting older, James is my oldest. And, James is uh, your oldest? Yeah. How old is James? Uh, you don't 29. Even know. He's looking to him for the answer. 28. <laughs> wow. Way to go, Dad. I knew it was close. <laughs> no, Nellie's 26. My Mary Grace is 21. Yeah, he knows vivid memories from like 81. But anyway. But from like 98 on, you're screwed, man. You're like, no, no, it's all blur for I, me. Anyway, I wanted to start doing more of my kids' activities, you know, watching yeah. the soccer and things like that. So. But you're still engaged in the sport. Well, yeah, you're I not, coach with my wife now at Episcopal. I've been coaching there for quite a few years now. And then uh, 
a couple of years ago, I started coaching the Masters at Fairmount. You must hate it. Was, I love coaching the Masters. It's a lot of fun. It's really... Uh, One of the members here in the well, audience. Chip learned, is, uh, right? Chip is... Uh, Chip's there. He's great. And it, it's just such a good group See, of people. See, that's, a, that's an entertaining group at it's, Fairmount. It's always learning. My, they asked me because I was coaching sort of this, like, in-between group. Guys that had rode in college, but they, and they were very good, but their career was now their priority. So they didn't have national team aspirations. So we had this group, and we were very fortunate. We put them together, and we went to Henley in 2015, 2016, did pretty well. Hey, could you come down and coach us a little bit? And they were older guys that were definitely racing in the master circuit. And I'll never forget, I did it for like, I don't know, a month. And, you know, I had these guys, and I'm doing all the stuff that, I, that Chris taught me how to do, and Bruce taught me how to do, and Chuck taught me how to do. And there was this one guy that, no matter what I did, he just kept grabbing the front end like this. <laughs> I'm having them do, you know, like, in and eight, turn the boat around all by yourself, straight oh on. Like, I'm God. doing it all. A grown like, man with a job. And then, and, then, and then we get out front of Boathouse Row after the row, and he's like, I really like you to explain that to me. So I'm, like, you know, pushing on his chest and pulling his arm so he can feel his lat and his arm coming out of the, out of the socket. I'm like, you got to feel that? And he goes, yeah, but this is my move. <laughs> I said, what are you, Tiger Woods? <laughs> He's like, this is my move. I've been doing that since high school. And, and I, I remember, I, I drove back, and I told my bookkeeper at my plant in Ambler, I was like, I'm done. Like, <laughs> these, I'm like, these people will never change. They're going to row the way they're going to row, and I'm just down there, like, running a stopwatch. I don't have time for that. Fairmount yeah. guys are a little more entertaining. <laughs> the, the, well, that 15 crew you had was yeah. pretty Fast, yeah, man. I mean, yeah. semifinalists at Henley. Yeah. And my, my, one of my best friends, Pete Seymour, was, I think, bow or three-man yes. of that boat? He was yeah. He was obsessed with that boat. I mean, you, got, great. you yeah. had Neil Good McPeak, group. I think, in that boat. Yep. You had some monsters yep. in that show. Was that the last time that you focused coaching on no, a we, we went. We, we actually – Well, 16. We lost, we, lost, um, we lost to a very good Thames Rowing Club boat on Saturday, and Neil was sick. And everybody kind of had the feeling that if he had been at full strength, we, we could have beaten that crew. And Thames beat the Germans the next day by 25 lengths. So that was really the final. So they, they wanted to make another go of it in 2016. So we did it again. Yeah. And uh, we brought in some, as UBC calls, ringers. These were guys that, you know, a guy named Brad Caracalsa. He had rode at LaSalle High School, rode at Columbia. And they're like, well, you can't row on the boat because he's not a member. I'm like, what, are you kidding me? Can we get him through membership? Like, <laughs> he, they couldn't get him through membership in time, so he, he couldn't row on the boat. But, well, you know, that's club rowing, and I get that. Um, but, but, you know, I thought the 2015 crew was maybe just a little bit better. I want to ask about that 2015 crew. crew. So, yeah. there, so um, I've seen, I've watched the race on YouTube probably 20 times. And they, you, you are up, yep. and then you're down. Yep. In a flash. Yep. It was like maybe 15, 20 strokes. Yep. You went up and down. Can you tell me, like, what was the experience of the athletes? What did you guys talk about as a coach after that loss? It was heart-wrenching. It really was. Um, the guy who was in the coxswain seat, uh, Andy Kelly, had coxswained our prep eight in 2000 that was fortunate enough to win the PE Cup. And so he, had, he knew what it took, and he, and he really believed this crew could do it. And, you know, Neil... Anybody who knows Neil McPeak, he rode at St. Augustine's and then at Penn. He was on a couple national teams. You know, Neil's like, he's like Gary Cooper. He's that guy. He's just, he's a hero. He's just a great, great guy. And he put it all on himself. And I think that made it really hard on the other guys in the boat because, you know, it certainly wasn't on him. You know, the Thames Rowing Club boat was, they were, they were a fantastic crew. And, you know, 
that's a situation where you just tip your hat and you say, we, we lost to a better crew that day. Um, you know, Neil didn't have the ability to shift gears. He was having a, a problem. You know, there's a lot of hay fever over there at that time of year. And uh, Neil didn't bring his inhaler. And we couldn't get the regatta to let us use um, a prescription inhaler. And so it, it, you play by the rules. It's funny, I just had Joe Michaels at my house in Avalon. And he was asking me about that race because he said, you know, it's built, the regatta is built to screw the Americans. They want your money, but they don't want to let you win any of the events. <laughs> and he said, but I really thought you guys were going to win that year. And I said, yeah, well, we probably would have if they had let Neil use his albuterol. But because it was a prescription written by a British doctor, they wouldn't let him use it. Wow. And, and uh, it was a shame. But uh, so when we got out, you know, we had great early speed. In fact, we had gone up to Princeton to work with um, Luke's eight and Brian Volpe. I remember this. Straight I remember this workout. Yeah. And, you know, we held, we held our own. And uh, so I really thought at that point, you know, if we get the right kind of draw, we got a really good shot here. And I knew we had good early speed. So the idea was let's get out and, and, and shift down and let Neil kind of, you know, catch his breath a little bit, and then we'll make another push when we get to the barrier. And I think Thames must have had, a, you know, a bug on me or something because they knew exactly <laughs> when we were wow. lagging a little bit, and they just went. It's unbelievable how home. you put so much emphasis on one guy. I mean, he real. I've rode with him once out there, and he really is a spectacular rower. But I want to finish with well, this. Well, like, like that, that crew, though, were great. The one whole of those boat guys, was amazing. They were great guys, and they were really training so for, hard. For guys that were, you know, again, focused on their careers and focused on their relationships, the investment they made of their personal time and, you know, they gave you everything they had for an hour and a half every single day. And, and it was like, it was a great experience for all of us. I want to finish with this. So I, I think that U.S. Rowing's team, the national team, I think that we're lagging something. We're missing something. I think as an organization, as a, as a, as a, as a team about to one year away from the Olympics, we're missing something. I love both of your opinions. Let it, let it fly. What do we need to do? You first. What, do, what, is this, what is this country, what do we need to do to get a goddamn medal back on this soil? Because we're missing something. I have an opinion. I don't want to say it. But I, you know, you're, you're, you're old enough that who gives a shit? So, Bruce, <laughs> tell me, what do you think? What do we do? And you're next, by the way. You're on the spot. I want to know, what the hell do we do to get a goddamn medal back on this soil? I think we got to... Put Bill and I in charge, yeah. first of all. I mean, Dude, is that a mic drop that, moment? That's it. Like, like, oh, yeah. You know, I think that'd be a good start. You, you know, save he's, a lot of money. He's not far off, and I'll tell you why. So the guys have been training in Princeton, you know, for the, well, they're at the eights up in New Hampshire now, but, the, you know, they've been training in Princeton. They did the same thing last year, and I'm fortunate enough, I have a couple of guys on the team that I've won Godson. And anyway, so they come down and they hang out at my house in Avalon on the weekends. They finish the row on Saturday, get down around 3 o'clock to the beach, and then they head back to Princeton around 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. And they're not having any fun. They have fun when they come to, to Avalon, but they're not having any fun. I think everybody – I think I think there's a, a level of professionalism that Mike brought to the team that revolved around training in a professional way. Um, but still, let's have some fun while we do it. And, you know, there's a, there's a place for the characters in the sport of rowing – there's a place for that. Um, and I'm not so sure that U.S. rowing sees it that way anymore. Um, and they want to exercise themselves from all the characters and all the fun. And, you know, they want it to just be this way. 
And, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to be successful. Maybe they're right. We'll see. You know, they, they, they have what? Uh, 18 months. Yeah. And we'll find out in Paris. Um, I think it's, it's a lot better when the athletes are looser. They're having fun. They're enjoying themselves. Um, and, and that comes from the top down, from, from the coaches. Um, uh, you know, and I think you've got to be really careful. You can walk a fine line, and it can, you can get these guys, you know, just wound a little too tight so they're not able to perform. And they've certainly put the effort in. They've done the training. And, you know, training's become so sophisticated that we know exactly what to do. We know how to do it. Why can't we have a little fun along the way? That's, that's a great way to – I mean, it's incredible. I agree. Now, aside from you being hired to run the program, what else do you? What other opinion do you have? I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the pool of athletes are big enough. I, I don't think the right. identification is good enough. I don't. We've had a couple guys win the world championships in the junior single, and, and I, neither one of them are on the single now. And, and so <laughs> it, it's the fact that we might not even have a single qualify for the Olympics is just ridiculous. And, you know, years ago, I remember in the 80s, I think canoe kayaking split off from their governing body. And there was some rumors that maybe maybe the whole international thing should split off from U.S. rowing because U.S. rowing seems to have an agenda and it's not athlete focused. The athletes aren't you know, for all the money being spent and everything, it's not being spent on the athletes, no, for sure. It's no. hard for them to train. Now they're gonna, they're gonna, but they're going to say, wait a minute, we have X amount of athletes getting $2,000 a month now. Yeah, but that's not real resources. No, it's and a you, joke. years ago, back when the very first probably junior camp was Chuck Crawford and Larry Connell. Yeah, 19, here, here. 1982. And for years, in order to do the junior camp, you applied, and part of your proposal was how you were going to house the kids. And, and the bottom line was to keep it down the, as cheap as possible. Mm-hmm. Now U.S. Rowing, they pick a coach, and they say, we're going to hold it here, and it's $5,000, you know, for a family or whatever. It's ridiculous. The same yeah. thing with junior rowing with the ODP camp or whatever. That's just a money grab, okay? So if the kid either makes the national team, or if they don't, you say to the kids, go back and row at your club, Okay. Why not give it? Because then you go to the Nationals, Club Nationals. Fortunately, this year, the ODP boats weren't very good, so the club boats were able to beat them. But most times you go out there and you get your brain. because it's a financial thing. It's just the rich kids going. It is. It's just the rich kids going. Stupid. They talk about inclusivity, and it's excluding kids. When Mike Mike asked me to help Chris Clark, Chris would say, Mike, you're the varsity coach. I'll be the JV coach. And Chris was running the Nations Cup. Wow. group out of Elkhart, Indiana. How did we end up in Elkhart, Indiana? I'll tell you how we ended up in Elkhart, Indiana. Because there was a woman there that got the town to pay for everything. It was free. <laughs> so we had, seriously, I'm telling you, the first year I was out there, I think we had 55 guys for an eight, a four, and a quad. 55 wow. guys. Think about that, right? And they, you know what they paid to go to that camp? $250. $250. We had 55 guys. And matter of fact, it was so deep that Mike said, all right, these guys are going to Europe. I want you to take these eight guys back to Philadelphia, find housing for them, get them, you know, just, you know, feed them, do whatever you got to do, and take them to Canadian Henley. We got to keep these guys rowing. So I did that for two summers. And, you know, Canadian Henley is a wonderful experience for guys. And, you know, it was great. So we had three levels that 
those two summers, you know, we had the senior team, we had the, what was then the Nations Cup team, and then we had, like, the sub-Nations Cup team that went to Canadian Headley. That's not happening anymore. I mean, that was a huge pipeline of guys. Wow. And there's people that want to help out. You know, those first junior, yeah. that first junior camp, a lot of the prep parents, house kids, then when Stan Bergman did it down the shore, they ran out of Brigantine, and Brigantine worked on housing, and, and they did fundraising. We'd get... Uh, some of the parents who, who were wealthier would help fund the junior trip, you know, to keep sure. the cost down and all. And now it's it just, works. It's today's world. It's the same thing with Women's World Cup soccer. What did they figure out at the end of it, right? They said that the, uh, they stink, right? Okay, they don't play well as a team. The coach yeah. got fired, as he should. But um, they were talking about uh, travel team soccer, right? How it's really taken away from the national team thinks what they're going to do. They should, the guy in the inquiry wrote a really good article about it. They should develop a system like the Philadelphia Union has now for developing, taking the best athletes and pointing them in these national team things. Again, the whole travel soccer, that, that travel across, it's all money grab. U.S. It's rowing has lost their, their view of a, mer- a true meritocracy, right? Because they're worried about putting people in these jobs because... You know, we got to have a woman coaching the women. we got to have a man coaching the man. Well, what if the woman actually is a better coach of men? And what if the man is a better coach of women? Like, they don't look at it through that lens at all. And we're never, ever, ever going to beat these other countries until we get back to a true meritocracy. I, I have one last question. I'm sorry for the audience keeping you going. I actually, I'm really enjoying this, so screw you. Uh, it's not about you. Uh, it's about me, obviously. Uh, is, so does winning matter? I've had the argument with a lot of people that does winning the Olympics matter to us? Should it? Does it actually matter to American rowing if we win a medal? I think that at the, for, for this audience, and most of you, I spoke to a lot of you out in the other room, a lot of junior coaches here, really happy to see that. At the junior level, even at the college level, the process is more important than the result, a lot more important than the result. At the national team level, we better fucking win. Okay. <laughs> How do you follow up with that? You can't. You can't. Good luck. No, yeah, that's tough to follow. That's a, that's. You know what? I'm, I'm, that's it. So everyone tuning in, watching this, uh, this has been an amazing discussion of stories <laughs> with Bill Lamb and Bruce Kanopka. Guys, thank you so much for being, being here. This has been wonderful. Thank you, thank you very much.